Tonight I'd like to investigate with you several avenues for understanding, um, I think, what is a, an overlooked, maybe even buried uh, quality of the Buddhist teachings and even more importantly, of this human experience, which is what the Buddha spoke about, an aspect of this human experience, which is relationality. And I'm gathering our inquiry around the teachings of the Buddha because though that set of teachings, that body of teachings, um, is so profoundly insightful as to uh, so many aspects of this human experience and has been tested for thousands of years. So, this Dhamma, this understanding of, this of natural law, um, can reveal to us uh, things that just a casual inquiry that our clever minds may undertake um, would really fall short. And also, the Buddha's inquiry and his teachings include not just an examination of the human experience, but a whole teaching as to how each of us can explore this human experience together and come to direct understanding. So it's not just a philosophy, an outlook, a science that's out there. It, it involves the an invitation and methodology for direct experience. The famous you know, words, come see for yourself. And here's how. Here's how you can come see for yourself. So that's a way of saying that this is not a religious conversation. It's based on the fact that there's tremendous wisdom uh, profound intelligence in these teachings. And the place that I would like to begin is with a really simple fact that all of us can recognize immediately uh, in our own experience which is the exquisite sensitivity of this body-mind. Um, I had the experience recently of having uh, a tooth problem right in the middle of teaching a bunch of retreats. And it, it really struck me powerfully how at its peak, all I had to do was, you know, just move my cheeks a little bit or, 
you know, suck in or something, and there was this pain, you know, sharp pain. It was, you know, I couldn't even imagine the, the small number of, what, micrograms of pressure? I don't know the measurement, but... And I was so sensitive. And those nerves are always there. They were just inflamed, right? And I reflected, those nerves are all over this body. You know, think you can poke not everywhere, but most places on your body with a needle, tiny little needle. You know, feel that exquisite pain of you know, that touch. A single photon detected by the eye, a change in a decibel detected by the ear. This is a fabulous sensitivity. resulting in this being in this complex environment of this world and responsive to it, responsive to the world, sensitively, profoundly sensitively responsive to this world. We all know this, right? All you have to do is bump your knee and you know it. Look around and you know it. If you pay attention, right? And, of course, we all know the story, you know. Some things are pleasant, some are unpleasant. We push away the unpleasant, we grab at the pleasant. We all know this. So we're in this state of stress and wanting and all this kind of thing. The part that I'd like to point out, right here and now, is that we are that this incredibly fine sensitivity of the actual sense organs together with the astonishing um, if you will processing capacity of the brain mind come together to create this situation where that sensitivity when these what these eyes see and what these ears hear and what this body touches and is touched by is another human being that this sensitivity is still operating and all of the same wanting and not wanting and stress and fear and complexity is operating, right? It's, it's functioning interrelationally, interpersonally. And so all of the same dynamics without one tiny bit of adjustment or change are operating. You see what I mean? So something pleasant touches the eye. Ah, this is a person I like. Want. Something unpleasant touches the eye. This person scares me. Aversion. Someone that I don't really care about because they're not a possible sex partner, source of money, um, 
uh, threat, and so on, you know, whatever the list of things that interest you are. If they're not any of that, delusion, ignore, don't know, blank. And then, just as we go through the physical environment, pulled and pushed in all these different ways, thrown off balance with our wantings and our fears and you know, our attachments and all the story that we know so well from this very life or from study of Buddhism, I don't care, but we know it, don't we? That same story is operating with humans with all of the same laws, dynamics, and relevant here, Dhamma. Natural law, especially as revealed, you know, as, as uh, uh, laid out by the Buddha so, so carefully, so cleverly. give an example of one of those dynamics, one of those teachings. I won't go into it in great detail, but perhaps as I speak, you can investigate the truth of what I'm saying. Check it out against your own experience internally and uh, and, and maybe the heart-mind opens to this possibility that, yeah, this uh, Dhamma, these teachings, are profoundly relational. Okay. I'll just say a few words about tanha, craving, hunger, second noble truth, the cause of suffering, because we're always hungering and never satisfied for more than a short while. And then our whole lives are oriented towards filling our hungers. We hunger for pleasure. We hunger for being, for existence. And we hunger for non-existence. This is the fundamental teaching offered by the Buddha on tanha, craving hunger. So, just taking this one teaching, just as we did a moment ago with pleasure and pain and neither pleasure nor pain, I mean pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience, we, we touched the interpersonal manifestation of that. Let's just do that briefly with hunger, with craving. So, is there, just as we long and the whole organism moves towards and wants and is pulling in the rope always of pleasure and of course the not wanting the pain, which is the other side of that. Relationally, pleasure means the pleasure of other people the pleasure of interpersonal contact. So, 
do we go through life seeking interpersonal pleasure? Do we call up our friends? Do we go to parties or ball games? Do we have great conversations and we want them deeply? Do we seek relationship and look for the pleasure of the comfort and safety of that relationship? Do we fear the absence of relationship, fear the loneliness, fear the separation? Do we hunger for the pleasure of other humans? I mean, you can look around. The answer is, of course, patently obvious that we do. What about the hunger for existence? Is this really just an existential, personal, individualistic teaching? The hunger for being, for becoming, Baba Tanha and Pali. What about this hunger for being and becoming? Is that really just the survival of this body, the existence of this self as a, some isolated unit? What is this? self that wants to exist and continue existing and becoming moment by moment. What rope are we pulling in? Well, another light we shed on this. To exist interpersonally is to exist in the light of, in the eyes of another. So this self, this me, is formed in relationship to you, to all of you, to, the, to all others, to my mother, to my father, to all my friends as I grew up, to everybody in the universe. If we just look at any moment of our lives, we can say, okay, wait a minute. Am I hungering to be seen? Am I hungering to exist? and we look at our, any individual relationships, or we look at our move through life, and we look at the strategies of the self, the jokes we tell to be seen, the clothing we wear, the ways we adjust our appearance, the professional accomplishments and their recognition. The creation of self moment to moment in a conversation, seeing and being seen, reciprocally creating each other. And of course, the reciprocal fear of that is the fear of not being seen, the fear of invisibility, the fear of non-existence. How much does our concern about our image in the world manifest, drive us, take up our thoughts? Uh, someone said something nasty about us and we're angry. Why, why bother? Why bother being upset? Because that self, as created and seen by others, has been injured, damaged in that moment by that person's comment or something, or by our reputation. It's very simple, it's so basic it almost becomes invisible to us. 
And then finally, the hunger for non-being, the hunger for non-becoming, the hunger to not exist, the suicide wish, the urge to get out of this life, the urge to get out of any situation. And relationally, this urge for non-existence, this Vibhavatanha, as the Buddha called it, is the urge to not exist in the eyes of others, to not exist in relationship, to not be seen. Fear of intimacy, fear of exposure, fear, fear of being seen in any of its forms. And all of it, all of the, the related strategies of escape whether it's physical addictions to substances or simply shrinking away through whatever strategies of disconnection we happen to have established. Get me out. Whether it's a uh, introverted persona or meditation or very extroverted persona behind which everything is hidden. So it can look very out there as long as this stays hidden and safe. It's all the relational manifestation of tanha, of craving, hunger. So, let me take now another approach to the same the same inquiry, the same question, same exploration. Let's just talk briefly about probably the Buddha's most famous teaching, or one of his most famous teachings, his most exoteric, visible teaching for everybody, the Eightfold Path, right? So, for those who don't know it, I'll just briefly say the Eightfold Path is the path by which one comes to see things as they actually are and so lead to the cessation of all of this hunger and all of this becoming and all of this ignorance that keeps us locked up in pain. That's the quick, you know, one-sentence version. But what is the path? It's, you know, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, concentration, uh, and right effort. And taking it just, just the, you know, the, the romp, a romp of a survey of, of the Eightfold Path, you'll find something quite astonishing. I was astonished when I... I personally was astonished when I uh, saw this fact. Most of the actual path, as described in the most traditional terms, without any stretch by some creative, you know, wanting it to be something. First of all, right view, wise view, 
the understanding of the nature of things that really directs which what we're doing with our lives. It's it's the most it is both the beginning of the path because if you don't really see that you're suffering at all, why have any kind of path at all? I mean it's really basic and it's sort of a real basic what's right and what's wrong or what's wholesome and unwholesome, what leads to more pain and less pain. You know, that kind of really basic understanding guides your actions. I mean that's what right right view is. So, what are the conditions? This is straight out of the straight out of the sutta, straight out of the discourses. What are the conditions for the arising of right view? The voice of another and wise attention. A speaker and a listener. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's straight out of the discourses. And you see it, it uh, I'm giving one example, and you see it all over the place. What are the factors that uh, support the cultivation of, of right view? Um, virtue, learning, discussion, and one of course learns from things that have been said, right? And virtue is relational, and discussion, so those three are already relational, and then um, tranquility and uh, I think insight or something like that. So already right view is resting on interpersonal contact completely. And of course if you happen to be a Buddha and just come to all of this completely by yourself then then this is not necessarily the case although as we all know uh, all of the great teachers have also had teachers, including the Buddha. Right intention. Sounds very internal and personal, doesn't it? I mean, right intention, that's got to be just me and my brain in here or something, you know. has that feel to it if you don't. Again, going right back to the most traditional and very often repeated uh, description of what is meant by right intention. There's three uh, uh, formulaic uh, aspects of right intention. Uh, and I can space, say them in relationship to so-called wrong intention or unskillful intention or unwise intention. Okay, there's the intention of relinquishment and the intention of, uh, you might say, uh, lust and accumulation. Now that can be both uh, relational and not directly relational, right? Because one may have lust for other, uh, other humans or something like this. It also could be for um, any kind of accumulation like objects and so on. So that's like 50-50, okay? The other two are a home run. What are they? Harmlessness or cruelty? And um, uh, anger or a loving kindness? They're both completely, thoroughly relational at essence. So there's right intention. 
Then we get to the easy ones, right? Speech, of course it's relational, right? You know, I don't need to say more about that. Right, action. Nearly all of the classical definitions of right action have to do with other human beings. Sexual misconduct, right? Um, killing, which also could have to do with animals, of course, but that's also relational, so no problem there. Um, uh, stealing. If there were no other humans on the planet, stealing would have no meaning, obviously. And intoxicants that, you know, basically make the mind crazy, that's, that can be construed as almost entirely personal, no problem. So we've got right speech, right action is almost entirely relational. And right livelihood or right lifestyle. Does that sound like just something one does? What is the meaning of that? Think about what that means. It has to do with what your profession is. It also has to do with how you live. Well, why does it make any difference how you live or what your profession is? It affects other people. <laughs> That's why it makes a difference. There's really no other reason that you would do anything from not abuse the environment or something or um, not... Um, uh, you know, be a, a butcher or sell weapons, you know, any of the classical. And then we come to right effort, right mindfulness, and right calm concentration. And right effort is a very nuanced, and rich teaching. And I'll just say in the most general terms now, and then maybe come back to it later, that the abandoning and cultivating of certain qualities of the heart-mind that are at the core of this teaching of right effort are um, uh, uh, a rich mix that includes things that appear to be quite individual and things that are uh, very patently relational. But we're gonna, in a, in a moment, we're gonna see that there's really, that's, that we can't make those distinctions so hard and fast, but I'm doing it because it's a conventional way of thinking about it. For example, um, uh, the abandoning includes abandoning um, sensory lust, which is obviously, again, as I said, both can be both uh, humans and just whatever else one senses. Same with anger, um, but except anger is primarily relational, and so on with these other qualities. Um, and then the cultivation, I'll let it be condensed when I speak to what I'm going to say about mindfulness and calm concentration. Um, which is this. As I hope we'll be able to find out in a few minutes, not only can we not 
is it an artificial distinction to say something is uh, relational or individual? But for sure, the qualities of the, of, the, of the mind, these fine qualities of mindfulness and calm concentration and all the associated qualities that uh, um, put under the enlightenment factors can be cultivated not only profitably but powerfully in both individual traditional meditation and interpersonal meditation. So that's, I'm going to bracket that and hopefully we'll have enough experience here to at least say, oh, I, I can see that that might be true and then any further inquiry that might be ignited would be for you to follow up on. So one more point and then I'd like to invite us into a little bit of practice to make this real as real as we can in this amount of time and this circumstances and so on. And then we'll have a chance to talk about this. There's a teaching that brings us right into the most subtle and refined heart of the Buddha's dispensation on the nature of mind. And it's called dependent origination, dependent co-origination, paticca samapada. And while every one of these factors of this 12-link causal chain, you know, this arises dependent upon this, this arises dependent upon this, that's the basics of it. They're all crucial, they're all beautiful, and each one is a profound teaching. I'm going to focus on one that is right at the base of defining the human experience. And uh, I'm going to tell you the Pali language, it's just a couple of words. And the reason I'm telling you this is just to hear the sound of it and to say, okay, so there's this really, really simple encapsulation. Sankara Pachaya Vinyana. Dependent upon constructions arises consciousness. Could sound very abstract, but I'm going to uh, maybe just unpack it a little bit so you can feel the presence of it here and now, not as some kind of thought that throughout your body, I'm hoping. I certainly do when I think about it, talk about it, because it's very alive. It's basically saying that each moment of consciousness arises dependent upon all past moments of volitional action, thought, and so on. Meaning, 
anything that you've thought or done, spoken, that the uh, that it affected, you might say, the stream of your life, and that the moment of the arising of consciousness is dependent upon all that came before. In a sense, it's the most obvious possible thing you could say. The sum total of what came before, you know, conditions what's arising now. So let's, let's kind of see what that would mean to us uh, in reality here and now, okay? So, you're sitting. You feel your body sitting, like just the sense of isness right here and now. I'm talking about actual experiences, not anything abstract. Are you with me? <coughs> just how it feels to sit here, be listening to these vo- this voice. Okay. So in this very moment, whatever your mind state is, is at least dependent on the fact that we've been sitting and talking for 20 minutes or something like this and you had some silent time before that conditioned that. You had so many things you did today and so much traffic and so much trouble parking and so many things that you said and did in the course of all that and then earlier in the day and what you ate and what the mind state was as you ate it all led up to this instant right here, right? And all of that was all in the container of this personality, this whole series of constructed psycho subunits that we call me, right? That all was the context for all of this. And all of those units within you, all of those aspects within you, were all conditioned by all your prior contacts and things you wanted to do and aspirations and you know, moments of anger, moments of great generosity, all conditioned that, right? And so that's all here too, yeah? So each moment, each word you hear, each sense of the moment and how you hear those words is conditioned by all of that. You see what I'm saying? Very straightforward. Cause and effect. No hocus pocus. Huh? Okay. Now I'm going to invite you to reflect on this. Thinking about your life, how many of those moments had something to do with another person or society? Right? And that includes you have a thought, you're by yourself, you're walking your dog, and you think of someone else. That counts as another person, right? Think about it. Any illuminations of anger or love? Any contacts in conversation? Any sense of a job and of society and of politics? These are all other people things, right? And then sometimes you just plain stub your toe. Right? So, what do you think? How many of those moments involve 
other humanity. I was speaking recently with uh, Andy Olensky, a, a good friend and Dhamma brother, and I asked him this question, and he's very, you know, kind of landed landed in the old teachings, Abhidhamma guy, you know. And so I said, most, right? Most of your thoughts? He said, all of them. Now, I thought that was going overboard, but coming from Andy, that was an interesting reflection, you know. But think about it again, again in your own lives. So, that means that each moment of consciousness from here until you die and beyond, whatever that means, every moment of consciousness conditioned by all prior moments of volitional consciousness if so many of those moments were interpersonally, relationally, socially rooted then even those moments of just seeing a sunset or reaching for your keys are conditioned by all of those relational moments. That's what this teaching says. And that's what this common, to me it seems like common sense, frankly. That's what it says. <laughs> it's profound. It's profound that, that how deeply relational is this human experience. And now we see that something like cultivating anything, any quality, like mindfulness and calm concentration, coming back to those path factors, is resting on the same consciousness. Whether, we're, whether what arises uh, in the moment of mindfulness or the volitional effort to be more mindful or more relaxed or whatever it is, Even if that feels very individual, it's, it's all held in the inescapably relational fabric of this being. So I'd like to touch into a little bit of uh, meditative practice just to explore this yourselves for a few moments. And then we can continue our inquiry together with some uh, experiential basis and perhaps explore what it might mean to this human suffering 
what it might mean to something like liberation, to something like cessation of suffering, to something like the arising of wisdom. If the if this fact were fully acknowledged, increasingly more deeply recognized and allowed to inform our lives and our most um, sincere meditation practice. What would that mean? Think of it as, let's say, stepping out of the delusion that it's not that way into the power of wisdom, what would that mean? That's, I'm not asking for an answer now. Because, you know, we, we want to touch something that's a little more immediate and real, and then we can explore that. So I'd like to invite us into just a few minutes of practice in uh, groups of either two or three and um, I'll offer some brief instructions for the meditation. I'll offer you a contemplation to talk about. And uh, give us a few minutes for the body-mind to settle after we move around and get into our little groups. And then we'll practice, and then after the practice, we'll come back and talk about it, okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.